Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Captain Over speaking. Our arrival time in Chicago will be 10.45 p.m. Central Time. Relax and enjoy your flight. Would you like something to read? Do you have anything light? Oh, how about this leaflet, Famous Jewish Sports Legends? Yes, thank you. That clip you just heard was from the 1980 cult classic film Airplane. And it captures the long-held perception of Jews in sports, which is, there are not that many. The joke only really works, though, if you take a narrow view of who gets to be professional in sports. It's not just athletes. Maybe this has been on my mind lately because I'm a few years into my journey of parenthood, but I've been thinking a lot about Jewish moms and the things we hand down to our children, our passions, our neuroses. I've also been thinking about what Jewish mothers for generations supposedly considered the holy grail for the future professional lives of their Jewish children. You see, for as long as there have been American Jewish mothers, there have been, let's face it, stereotypical, often sexist, and definitely heteronormative expectations that good Jewish sons would grow up to be doctors, lawyers, or accountants, and that good Jewish daughters would find themselves nice Jewish husbands who also happen to be doctors, lawyers, or accountants. As far as I know, this was just what was expected of Jewish children, and it shaped how society viewed us. The leaflet of Jews in sports felt light and like there was no legitimate way within these cultural norms to add pages. But then, in 2003, something happened. Or rather, some things happened. For the first time, there were models for how brainy Jewish kids could be brainy Jewish adults in sports. It wasn't just doctor, lawyer, accountant anymore. It could be doctor, lawyer, Theo Epstein. And people would get it. And if you don't get it, or you don't know who Theo Epstein is, stick around, because I'm about to explain. I'm Meredith Shiner, and welcome to another edition of The Franchise, Jews, Sports, and America. This episode is about other promised lands, or the ways Jews found careers in the game without playing the game. We're going to talk about all of the ways Jewish Americans professionalized their passions, starting with 2003, the year that changed how teams were run forever. We'll explore how Jews were impacted by a mathematical and statistical revolution, which created the space for them to turn their parents' accountant expectations into a sports-based reality. But I also want to highlight other professional paths in sports, ones that merge passion, creativity, and hard work with a devotion that has nothing to do with math. Because I'm not a normal Jewish mom. I'm a cool Jewish mom. We'll talk to a father who ran a famous baseball player's museum and his daughter, who's a star hockey reporter at ESPN. We'll also talk to one of my favorite Twitter personalities, who used the platform as a way to keep connected with his best friend from Jewish day school and parlayed his good tweets into a professional sports career. 
We'll even talk to a journalist who, unlike me, was really productive in the pandemic and finally pursued her dream of writing romance novels with Jewish queer baseball players as the leading characters. Other Promised Lands is one way to think of this conversation. But another way is that today's episode is about the nerds who will inherit the Earth and how they came into that inheritance. So let's talk about 2003 and the front office revolution, which started in baseball, but is now taking over nearly every professional sport. In 2003, Michael Lewis published the book Moneyball, the true story of the math nerds and recovering McKinsey consultants who took over the Oakland Athletics and transformed the way baseball teams were built. Every at-bat's like a hand of blackjack. Every card that's dealt, your odds completely change. This is your basic breakdown of all the location of pitches, where you should be hitting them, why you should be hitting them. So he wants to walk one. Good question. Yes. Led by general manager Billy Bean, who would later be played by Brad Pitt in the Hollywood version of the tale, the A's took a comparatively shoestring budget and turned it into a winning team through measuring each player by a set of sophisticated statistics instead of an old scout's gut. Gut was a qualitative metric, one that often required the gut's owner to have played sports. But statistics? Those were quantitative and democratized a previously jockey space. You don't need to have ever swung at a pitch in order to calculate when to do so. 2003 was also the first Major League Baseball season in which the Boston Red Sox were run by Theo Epstein. The Theo in the doctor-lawyer-Theo triumvirate. Epstein had been hired the previous fall as the youngest general manager in MLB history at 28 years old. He was Jewish, he went to Yale, he checked all of the traditional Jewish mom boxes with a twist. In 2004, his second season as GM, Theo would become the face of the franchise, ending the Red Sox so-called Curse of the Bambino, which had deprived them of a World Series for 86 years. Theo was a stats believer He traded Boston's star shortstop for some lesser-known players who turned out to be essential to the championship. He was as close to a celebrity as a baseball person who didn't actually play the game could be. Before this time, it was hard for most Jewish kids to imagine themselves growing up into iconic Jewish athletes like basketball great Dolph Shays or Sandy Koufax. The numbers were just not on our side. But Moneyball and the subsequent Moneyballification of sports gave a whole generation of nerds a pathway that never existed before. And it charted the course for Jewish math nerds to exert influence over the game. It's a bit of a cliche in the baseball front office world to say that reading Moneyball as a kid was the thing that got you into this. But the fact is, this cliche for me happens to be true. That's Ben Zausmer, assistant general manager of the New York Mets, a position he was promoted into last year at the age of 28 after leading the team's data analytics operation. I read Moneyball as a kid and immediately 
thought, oh, wow, that's a way that I could be involved in this game. I knew I was never going to be a, a professional ball player, but I always loved baseball and I love math. And the moment I learned that there was a profession that combined the two, even as a young kid, I immediately realized that if I were so fortunate, I might have a future in that. This sort of became a path that was known and accepted and sort of within like the cultural norms of what Jewish Americans are supposed to professionally pursue. It is a pretty wild thing. There are not many times where Brad Pitt is on screen playing almost this patron saint of mathematicians. I really do think that that book and that movie are why this type of profession has entered the lexicon. It's why when I meet new people and they ask what I do for a living and I explain it, they immediately know their eyes light up and they say, oh, like Moneyball. It's because of that book and that movie that everybody's so familiar with this. When a baseball general manager, a previously unglamorous role, gets played by Brad Pitt in a movie, it would be easy to assume that the Moneyball boom was born out of the Hollywood version of Moneyball. But I'm not sure Hollywood actors can do math. Someone actually had to do the work of shaping the Moneyball generation. Meet Adi Weiner. He's a professor of statistics and data science at the Wharton School of Business and a prize-winning mathematician. He also loves baseball. In many ways, I am a statistician because I was so interested in looking at data and the backs of baseball cards gave you all the information about the players and I memorized them almost instantaneously and became very proficient at numbers through my love of baseball and baseball statistics. On the other hand, as a 12-year-old, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Let's make that 100% clear. My goal was to play for the Yankees. It wasn't to be a sports analyst. Uh, Very quickly, I realized that was never going to happen. Adi founded the Wharton Sports Analytics and Business Initiative, leveraging the credentials of one of the world's best business schools to power baseball's data revolution. Have you ever heard of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? The premise is that you can link any actor on Earth to Kevin Bacon using six Hollywood names or less. Adi Weiner is like the Kevin Bacon for math nerds and MLB front offices. But if the game only required two connections or less. So I talked to Ben Zausmer of the Mets. Of course, I know Ben. He hired one of my students who worked for him. Everyone's going to play Jewish geography through you. You are going to be the Kevin Bacon of baseball here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just nerds. Right. If Moneyball inspired Adi's disciples, then he gives them the tools to mathify sports. Like any revolution, there are positives and there are negatives. Front offices are still undeniably, and in my opinion wrongly, dominated by white men. But because of the data revolution, the idea of who belongs in a front office and who doesn't has changed dramatically. It's not just retired athletes who get to influence the game, in large part because the game has changed. Sports was not traditionally a business that valued braininess. But over the past few decades, the entire business of sports transformed into something bigger, way bigger. And the bigger it got, the more businesslike it became. The entire National Football League, for example, is worth a collective $140 billion. The 50 most valuable teams in the world are all worth multiple billions of dollars apiece. So it's only natural, even if it feels unnatural to those who grew up with sentimental attachment to the game, that these multi-billion dollar corporations would want to be run like multi-billion dollar corporations. 
Corporations stacked with consultant types who can arrange all of their players, or assets, by their return on investment or performance on the field. Not all fans approve of the results of this approach. And Adi has heard those critiques, and he has thoughts on them too. There are people who've pushed back on it because they claim the game's changed and it's now boring. So how has it changed? Fundamentally, they've moved the fielders around. So the fielders are no longer playing in their original straightaway positioning. Players are shooting for home runs. They're trying for home runs. They've elevated the launch angle. They changed their swing. On the other hand, when you go to a game, you're seeing many more strikeouts, more home runs with people not on base, which produces fewer runs, and far less hitting and less offense. And in general, that is a less exciting game. My response to that is, I expect the game to eventually shift. The the batters and players will learn how to accommodate that. And I do think that that is not a, a detriment to the game. On a macro level, the outrageous explosion of money in sports changed everything about the way we consume and understand them. On a micro level, it allowed smart Jewish kids to turn their obsession with sports into quote-unquote respectable jobs in sports. Here's Adam Newman, who at the age of 32 is the chief of staff for the Big Ten Conference. He told me how he broke from his family accounting lineage and landed in a league office. The misfits have broken back in. I had the opportunity to bring my whole family to a Passover program, which was unbelievable to speak a few times to the crowd. And I spoke very much about this. I use accountants as ones because my parents are both accountants. And I said, like, it used to be like, you know, if you're not an accountant, people would kind of laugh at you. Speaking of counting money, in August, the Big Ten inked the richest ever television contract for a college conference, valued at $7 billion, according to The New York Times. That's a lot of accounting. But Adam, he seems to thrive on the challenge. And he's seen a broader movement of Jewish nerds dreaming big. That was like the whole thing. Like, and my boss, Kevin, and I love this term, he calls it the dream chuckle. That's Kevin Warren, as in Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren. He always says to me, Adam, if you come to me every two weeks and one of your ideas, I'm not laughing at you, like, you're not dreaming hard enough. If your dreams aren't so big that people are laughing at them, you're not really dreaming. I think folks are starting to like learn that. Get that dream chuckle on, you know, like you don't need to just be X and then like have everybody go, oh, that's a great job. That's really exciting. Oh, oh, I understand that, Johnny. That's a that's a great job for you. And it used to be when I would tell people, oh, I want to work in sports. People would just laugh openly. They'd be like, that's great. You and everybody else. But I think people are making a comeback and people are seeing the significance and I tell people all the time, if you have passion and you have opportunity and you're willing to work hard, that's a recipe for a lot of success. It's not gonna always be success the way that you defined it initially, but if you're open to what success looks like, you have an opportunity. On the topic of dreams, if I'm being honest, one of my not so secret ones is just to make a living off of being funny on Twitter. Of course, there are a few problems with this dream. First, being funny enough for such a career to begin with. And second, figuring out how to actually monetize it. That's why I wanted to interview someone who lived this pipe dream of turning good tweets into a good career. I wanted to talk to the brains behind Cespedes Family Barbecue, a Twitter account named after former Met Yoana Cespedes that started as a joke between two friends and grew to over 130,000 followers and a corresponding sports media mini empire. 
I chatted with Jake Mintz, one half of the barbecue, about his very fun and very Jewish path to a career in sports, a career in which he was talented enough to monetize tweeting. So it started when I was in high school, me and my very good friend, Jordan Schusterman, we met at synagogue in eighth grade, seventh grade, and we were both baseball nerds and we wanted to write about baseball on the internet. And we were like, we'll start our own website. No one will ever read it. I'll never have to explain it to anybody ever. What do we want to name it? And Jordan was like, how about Cespedes Family Barbecue? Naming it after a video that former big leaguer, Joanna Cespedes, had where he works out for teams. And then at the end, it's him roasting a pig over an open spit. <laughs> and Jordan and I, as two kids from suburban Maryland who went to Jewish day school and kept kosher, you know, we had never seen a pig before, let alone one on a spit. We were like, this is crazy. <laughs> we'll name it this. And so we just kind of started tweeting and making dumb jokes. And we kind of caught on and we tweeted some dumb tweets. And then we fell asleep on a keyboard. And now we have 130,000 Twitter followers. And I make enough money off of it to pay for my rent. You channeled everything about being a Jewish sports nerd and having fun with all of the like weird cultural shit about sports. And you like manifested that into a career. And you had like a really unique voice that to me as a Jewish baseball nerd was like so familiar. Jordan and I, as two friends who met at synagogue, like that relationship has been there and will always be there because like, you know, we've known each other for over a decade first. So I think that that's part of why the Jewishiness filters into it, right? Because that's literally where we met. We went to Jewish high school and like we were at each other's bar mitzvahs and, you know. Well, and I think that that's... So interesting because the full complement of sports nerds, like there is that like McKinsey consultant front office stats track. Yeah. But that's way less fun. I can't code. <laughs> you know, like I don't know how to do that. But you don't need to to be able to send tweet. No. As someone who also can't code, at least I can hold on to this dream that seems more attainable. And Jake's career, for me, shows that if you do it right, even tweeting viral moments of baseball players doing ridiculous things can be very Jewish and rewarding. This next Jewish sports professional, honestly, was a total curveball to me. I had set out on interviewing this one person on this one thing and then also discovered she had a pen name under which she wrote Jewish sports-themed romance novels. I interviewed Sydney Berkman for a later episode, and you'll hear her voice again. But for now, I want to talk to K.D. Casey, Sydney's literary pseudonym, about her very niche, but very passionate, other writing. I would love to hear you talk about, in your own words, how you got on this path of writing Jewish baseball romance novels. Yeah, so I write queer Jewish baseball romance novels about people who have disabilities. It's a very well-defined niche. December 26th, 2019, I sat down and was like, I'm going to write a book. Sure, why not? And I had never written anything longer than maybe like 30,000 words before. So I sat down and I wrote it. I wrote a book. 
I then queried it in March 2020, which I don't recommend doing that, and got nowhere. And then decided, okay, the first book didn't work. Let me write a second book. So I sat down, wrote a second book in about six weeks, and then got it published. And so what I wanted for that second book was really, I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to put in everything I like. It's going to be queer. It's going to be Jewish. It's going to be baseball. And it's going to be like a baseball book for baseball people. I wanted a sportsy sports romance and I wrote one. (laughs) The working title of this book was Pitch Framing and Other Lies. And my agent, who is a wonderful person, was like, you know that no one has any idea what that means. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It got renamed Unwritten Rules, which actually fit thematically a lot better and obviously is a little bit more marketable. My hypothesis, and I, I have found this to be true, is that baseball people like a lot of baseball in their baseball fiction. And that's sort of where I was coming from. It's a unvarnished look at some of the, the issues in professional baseball. Because, you know, that's what people read, read romance novels for. I mean, the cover art is so... If you tried to, like, CGI Sandy Koufax as a young person in 2022 and made him, like, lift up his shirt a little. Twitter is very thirsty for young Sandy Koufax. So I'm just going to leave that there. Sandy Koufax, timelessly handsome. Maybe it's because I once considered it for myself, but of all the ways that Jewish Americans can become professionals in sports, the one that feels the most familiar to me is sports writing. When I was the editor of the sports section of Duke's college newspaper, I used to joke, maybe too much, that those who can't play, write. And if you go back a few decades, becoming a sports writer was one of the first real avenues Jews took to get in the game. I wanted to talk to my friend Emily Kaplan, ESPN's hockey reporter, and her dad, Dave. Dave was the Sunday sports editor at the New York Daily News for more than a decade. And Emily grew up watching sports with him. Emily grew up in Montclair, where we lived for over 20, almost 30 years. And Montclair- A town in New Jersey. Town in New Jersey. Don't hide the fact that we're from New Jersey. That's Emily jumping in, because even though this is a podcast about Jews and sports, She wanted to make sure that the 10% of you who did not know that Montclair is in New Jersey now do. Montclair is important here because it was this New York City proximate sports writer mecca. Just listen to Dave talk about all of his friends, who were also sports writers. There was all these sports journalists who lived in Montclair, and all my best friends were, you know, the Frank Isolas and the Harvey Araton, Peter King. And Peter took an interest in Emily because Emily would be writing little stories for the local weekly. She'd get like five, bu- what, five bucks a story, whatever it was. And get every, her every time we tell the story, the, the amount of money goes down and down. Like I think <laughs> at one time it was 12 and went down to 10. And now we're at $5 for five children's minimum wage. Whatever it was. It wasn't a lot. For years, Emily worked at Sports Illustrated, covering the NFL. Until out of nowhere, it felt like she switched sports and took the job covering hockey for ESPN. The NHL is just not as big of a deal as the NFL in the larger sports world. But it was in Emily's world because of how Dave felt about hockey when Emily was young. That was really my passion, my favorite sport. And Emily, when I'd watch the Rangers games, she would just kind of sidle up next to me, ask me questions, and, uh, you know, we kind of bonded over it. Well, and I mean, so when I first met you, Emily, you were working for Peter King. So it was really interesting to me because obviously like you were into football, but 
what I had known of Dave's career was as an executive director of a museum that was attached to baseball. And I don't even know that I realized that the sport that you had really bonded most over was hockey until you were considering the ESPN job. I'm a middle child of three girls and I have serious middle child complex. So I always thought that my dad hated me. Um, (laughs) One of the reasons I believe that was that he coached my older sister in softball. I had no interest in softball. So I just thought he hated me. But inherently to get closer to him, I found a bonding activity, which was watching New York Rangers games. And we bonded over hockey and he taught me hockey. I've obviously manifested it to become my dad's favorite daughter, as little (laughs) children do. Some of Emily's career trajectory can be traced back to the sports she loved as a kid. Influenced by a dad who lived sports day in and day out in an incredibly unique way. Here's Emily talking about the job her dad took after leaving the Daily News when she was seven and how their family immersed itself in baseball in addition to hockey. Baseball was always part of our life, obviously, because of my dad's job. He took that in 1998. I was seven years old then. Can you say for our listeners what the job is? Because this is my favorite thing. My dad was the executive director of the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center, the founding director. Because of that, Yogi Berra was a friend of the family. He was around. My dad took me to spring training with him in Tampa. We would go to Yankee games. My dad was always known as like Yogi's friend. He was the guy that drove him to Yankee games. We'll come back to the relationship between Yogi and the Kaplans in a later episode about bar and bat mitzvahs. What a tease. But I want to share one last thing from Dave and Emily. I easily could have just interviewed Emily, rising star at ESPN. But I really wanted to interview the two of them together. Because when I think about the purpose of this show and the best stories we can tell about Jews and sports, I'm not sure there's a better story to highlight than one of a sports dad empowering a sports daughter to be everything she can be. And one of my favorite parts of this interview was when Dave and Emily talked directly about the impact each had had on the other. Yeah, I think, you know, just her playing sports, growing up with it, helped set her on her way. There's always adversity and obstacles and, you know, playing sports. And obviously there is in such a competitive field, too, is is journalism. I don't think anybody will ever outwork her. It's just been really fun to watch just her growth, her development from this, you know, bratty, pigtailed kid playing field hockey to uh, just a really, really solid professional journalist. It's really been fun to watch. I do give a lot of credit to my parents and my father because those are the values that they instilled with us. It was never about chasing fame or money or anything like that. It was just work hard and find what you love to do. And my dad doing the museum and learning center, like he focused so much on the educational programs. Now he teaches, works on other projects with museums. And like, again, it was just about following your passions and and working hard and it would all work out in the end. So I always follow those guiding principles and I feel like that's the way I've always tried to live my life. The beautiful thing about Emily's story is that she's not the only person I talk to who credits a family member for inspiring their love of sports. Every person you've heard interviewed here, despite their varied careers, they all have one thing in common, a family linked to sports and Judaism. At some point in each of their interviews, they told me about a parent or a grandparent whose love of sports infused their love of sports. Their careers, whether they are writing novels about baseball or tweeting jokes or inking multi-billion dollar TV contracts, 
are a result of this core inheritance, a love they now, in so many ways, share with us. This is what they had to say. My great-grandfather was born in Russia, moved to the Bronx with his family. He watched Babe Ruth when he was young, and my father was raised on the Yankees. I inherited from my father two signed baseballs of the entire 1946 Yankees and 1954 New York Yankees. He got them from his father, and he passed them down to me, and I will pass them down to my sons. They're like family religious items. My mom is born and raised in Baltimore. Orioleness is just kind of there for me. It has always kind of been there. I was born the day Cal Ripken tied Lou Gehrig, and my grandma left my mom in the hospital and went to the game. And like, I would stay up to watch Cal Ripken hit. I would get to watch his first half of that every night, and then I would go to bed when I was really little. You know the commercials about like, you know, you're becoming your parents. I know I'm becoming my parents when I'm looking at a ball player. Like, their name can be just like vaguely Jewish. Be like, are they Jewish? Do they not know that they're Jewish? Jonah Nathan Heim, a catcher for the Texas Rangers. He is not Jewish at all, but I'm like, but could he be? No, he's, he's not. My dad in particular, he was definitely the biggest baseball fan in the family before I started working in baseball. He's from LA, so he grew up a Dodger fan, going back to the Sandy Koufax days. When I started working for the Dodgers, that was the most natural fit in the world for him. But now he's gotten on the Mets bandwagon. Diehard Dodger fans and now diehard Mets fans. <laughs> I grew up in a home that valued what I would believe are Torah principles. Integrity, working hard, lifting people up. What I've found in my professional experience is that the discipline of being Jewish, the discipline of some of the things that you might think you might be embarrassed about are actually the things that make you special and they're the things that people respect the most. And I think that's very similar to sports, that consistency, that every single day I'm gonna be there for it. And I think I learned that as a kid, I learned that in Judaism and I think I continue to see that in sports and it, I think it's very ennobling. I joked at the beginning of this episode about being a cool mom. I don't know that I'll ever actually be a cool mom. But I do think so much about who our son will be and our responsibility in helping him to become that person. So I loved hearing all of these professionals talk about inheriting some great sports love from their parents and grandparents and making it their own. In 2022, maybe it seems like inheriting a love of sports isn't that big of a deal or it's ancillary to who we are. But the grandparents and great-grandparents who took on the job of building Jewish life in America incorporated this piece of being American into being Jewish. And now, it's just a part of our lives. In some ways, tying all these careers to family tradition is tying them to Judaism. And it reminds us that loving things ourselves, whether it's a sports team or a good matzo ball soup recipe, is actually so much of the work of sharing that love with others. We don't have to direct our kids to love the things we love. They can just absorb it and transform it into something new, something even better. That's the privilege of this uniquely American Jewish inheritance. I take great comfort and pride in both being and raising a nerd who will inherit the earth. Next on the franchise, 
a conversation about shame and what happens when American Jews grow in their wealth and prominence, buy the teams we love, and embarrass us along the way. I'm Meredith Shiner, and I'll see you next time. The Franchise is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Meredith Shiner. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibovitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Our logo is by Kurt Hoffman. Special thanks to Tablet Magazine and the Tablet Studios team, including Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sarah Fredman Ader, and Jerome Rusquet and the Meredith Shiner team of Josh and Carter Zembic. Please rate and review us wherever you can listen to podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this series, tell a friend. You can write to us at franchise at tabletmag.com. And for more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash the franchise. For more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. 